Hey everyone, great to be here. It has been uh, great to dive into the book of Revelation over the past few months, especially since it, it is often a neglected book in the church. For many who grew up in the church, it is often thought of as a book of mystery, which it is. Uh, for some, it's scary, which some of it is. Uh, some might say it's impossible to understand, which many parts are very difficult to interpret and we need to be very careful with. And for some, maybe you feel it isn't even worth going into. It's so difficult. And there I'll challenge you because I think the book of Revelation, uh, it's been an encouragement to the church since the first century, and it was meant to give strength and resilience during difficult times. I would, I would also argue that it has some of the greatest images of worship in all of scripture, all of creation transfixed and looking with expectation around the cosmic throne of, of Jesus. And I tell you, I've been very encouraged as I've studied in preparation for this series, and I've been very happy to receive emails and calls and have conversations with some of you who found the study helpful and, and an encouragement. So last week, we looked at the first four trumpets in chapter eight, where we witnessed judgment beginning to take place on, on evil in the world. But, but mixed with this judgment, as we will continue to see, is, is opportunity from God and mercy and, and an escape. Theologian Michael Gorman he says it this way. He says, Revelation's visions of judgment symbolize God's penultimate or next to last rather than ultimate activity in human history. That is, judgment is a means to an end, the goal being eschatological or final salvation, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in which humanity realizes its true reason for existence as reconciled peoples flourishing together in the presence of of God and the Lamb. What a beautiful vision. And that's the vision of Revelation. So the primary purpose of Revelation and the, the judgment that's poetically described in it is not to instill fear. That's not the primary goal, but it's to provide a wake-up call for those who are sleeping, not merely through life, but, but through the influences of what John will refer to later as Babylon, the influences and the temptations of the world. Uh, another theologian, Richard uh, Balcom, says it this way. He says, John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of wars and natural disasters, blown them up to apocalyptic proportions, and cast them in biblically elusive terms. So the, the point is not to predict a sequence of events. The point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world. And the meaning which, which we see over and over is that God is calling for repentance, a turning from the cult of worshiping the gods of our own creation to worshiping the Lamb. So today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 9. And let's start with Revelation 9 verses 1 to 11. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee, will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. 
They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. That's wild. <laughs> so, so in this scene, we have, we have a star who, who's not a star, but a person. Stars in Revelation often represent angels or spiritual powers. And this, this power is, fall, is a fallen power. The language implies that, that this falling has already happened. John is not seeing it happen. It seems as though it has already happened. The, this fallen power is given a key to open the abyss. Now, throughout Revelation, the abyss or the bottomless pit is a place where evil dwells. It's where evil dwells. We see this later in Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 7. It says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And in, in chapter 17, verse 8, the, the abyss is where evil is not only, it, not only where it dwelled, it was actually imprisoned there. In the Gospel of Luke, when, when Jesus casts out demons, we, we, we see an idea of this, a hint at this. The demons are pleading with Jesus, and then in Luke 8, verse 31, it says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So what we need to keep in mind, and, and it's emphasized over and over in, in this chapter, is that any power evil has is given. It's overseen by God. It's not out of his sovereignty. So we see this throughout this chapter, that it's limited. It's given, it says in verse 1. They were allowed, it says in verse 5. They are given their power for five months. It's limited, it says in verse 5 and verse 10. It's not a, a, five months is not an overly magical number. Scholars just say that's usually how long locusts came to do damage. It was usually for five months. So their power is limited by time, but also in scope. They're not allowed to touch those who belong to Jesus, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, it says in verse 4. They, they, they don't come and go as they please, but they are released, it says in verses 14 and 15. Someone else is in charge. Again, they destroy only one-third, says in verse 15, not entirely. Behind every chapter and episode in Revelation, we must see in the background, or actually we should imagine ourselves at the throne with Jesus firmly seated and viewing from above safely and seeing all things moving because he's allowing it. With the fifth trumpet comes this invasion of these locusts. And again, this is a, this is a flashback to the plagues in, in Egypt during the, the Exodus, specifically of, of locusts coming from the east, it says in, in Exodus chapter 10, and darkening the sun so that no green thing remained. But, but these locusts in Revelation, they're, well, they're different. <laughs> they're different in what they do. They're a kind of invading army, less like Exodus and more like those described by the prophet Joel. In the book of Joel, there's, there's, there's not a question that the, the purpose of the locusts is to bring about repentance. It's God's judgment. Joel invites a, a proper response to such an invasion of these kinds of locusts. In Joel 1, verse 14, he says, Consecrate a fast, call a, a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out, to the Lord. That's, that's what we're supposed to be drawn to do. And it seems John's aim is, is the same. So much of, of how the locusts are described by Joel is repeated 
by John in, in chapter eight of Revelation. Joel chapter two, verses four to seven says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of, of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like, like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from, from their paths. They're an unstoppable army, Joel describes these locusts. But in Revelation 9, these, these locusts have behaved differently with a, with a special dark purpose. Locusts usually go after the harvest. In this case, they're told not to harm the grass or green plants. They're tormenting people. They have tails like scorpions that, that sting and cause pain. They're causing suffering. It may be physical, but I think more than that, it's, it's all-encompassing, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's the, the sense of darkness and hopelessness that comes when evil goes unhindered. I remember seeing a scorpion for sale in a pet shop in Winnipeg. I, I remember asking the owner about the power of its sting, and I said, now, if it stung me, would I die? And he said, no, you wouldn't die, but you wish you were dead. So you will cry out for it. You will ask God to take you. Something similar is going on here. There's, there's something in this torment where suffering will cause a crying out for release. So these locusts are a representation of, of evil bringing suffering and pain. And look how they appear in verses 7 to 11. And this is intense, but, but please notice that John is grasping. There's so much simile. There is so much they are like, they are as, to, to, to help try to explain what these creatures look like. The word like is used eight times in these verses. John's doing his best to describe these strange, composite, symbolic creatures. They are weird creatures. And if you've seen anyone try to draw them, and I have got a few images here, or worse, try to recreate them for, for a movie, it's never good. Why? Because they're symbols. Symbols of chaos and pain. Symbols of real chaos and pain, but symbols. These locusts were like, were like a horse in battle, ready to do damage. Uh, damage in numbers, and they had crowns of gold. They were given authority. They seemed to be a mix of human and animal parts, human faces and hair, animal teeth. They, they made noises like a large group of chariots, just like those in Joel. The point is, they are coming in like an army to cause destruction. Well, how do we know that? Well, the very name given to the king, their king or their leader as they charge into battle is Abaddon or Apollyon, probably the same being John mentions has fallen from the sky. Well, Abaddon means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. Most likely this is the same creature we see in verse one. John said, he says he saw like a, a star fallen and, and this creature is given the key to the abyss. Most scholars would probably point to this as being the devil himself, Satan. And, and this matches Jesus' description in Luke 10. Speaking to his disciples, he says of Satan in verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what I actually love in, in Luke 10, and read this later, in, in light of Revelation 9, is that Jesus goes on to say that as those who belong to him, as those who belong to Jesus, verses 19 to 20 of Luke 10, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. So much of that imagery is found in Revelation 9. I wonder if John's memory went back to this lesson, sitting at Jesus' feet and his words regarding serpents and scorpions, the two symbols used to explain pain and torment in Revelation 9. Jesus says, you don't need to fear that. It's a reminder that for those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, who have the mark of God on their foreheads, as it's described symbolically, they do not need to worry about Satan's armies. We have authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and the powers of evil over the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, Jesus says. So who should be fearful? Who who are these locust-like creatures doing battle with? Well, not those who belong to the Lamb, not those with the mark of God, it says in verse 4. Those who feared an invasion in the first century were not Christians, but those whose trust and identity was placed in the power and temptations of the empire of Rome. Later in Revelation, we'll see the the current worldly power referred to as Babylon. I think we we see this highlighted even more so in, in, in this next section, in verses 13 to 19. We see another kind of invasion, another woe. Maybe this was a little more familiar to first century Romans. These horsemen from the east. In verse 13, it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, a massive number. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. Again, crazy imagery. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and their heads of horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, remember Luke 10, with heads, and by means of them they wound. The trumpet, the sixth trumpet blows, the the next warning, the next call to listen and turn, the next opportunity to be brought into the community of the Lamb, to repent, and it proclaims a, a threat from the east. Now, when danger and chaos came to Rome, it tended to come from the east beyond the Euphrates. Here we have four angels who are released to to kill one-third of mankind. The four angels seem to represent perfect timing, that that all of these things are happening according to plan. They represent the hour, the day, the month, and the year that God ordained for this to take place. And the, the weapon of these angels comes from the east, mounted troops carrying out their their this horrible business. They wear armor of judgment, fire and sapphire and sulfur. It seems to be, to be blazing as, as they move. They, they're ferocious like lions. They have fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths and causing torment. One ongoing danger to the empire of Rome, as we have seen before, were the Parthians, known for their ability to ride and do battle on horseback. The ongoing below-the-surface fear of the average Roman was that the Parthians would attack. Would attack more, more than Germanic tribes from the north, there was always a fear that the Parthians would come from the east. And their only boundary was the Euphrates River. They were right on the other side. They were known for, for long hair, for riding on horseback, riding backwards, as we mentioned before. The Parthians used to shoot while riding backwards so that they could inflict pain while retreating. Often this was a, a tactic used to fool, fool other armies into believing they were retreating, like a tail facing backwards and wounding their enemies. 
But although these creatures described by John may bring Parthians to mind, they are, they're beyond the Parthians in scope. They, they are a strange, again, a composite of creatures. We saw locusts in the first half of chapter 9, but with scorpion and, and lion and human-like aspects, then a, a human army now, but with animal kingdom-like aspects. These are symbols of chaos, of things being turned on their head inside out, of, of what it looks like to try to live in the world without order that the world was meant to be lived in. These trumpets are a declaration that the king is on the way, so prepare yourselves, that the world is turning on itself. His presence and his judgments are coming to correct and to instill order and justice and peace. And at the end of chapter 9, we see what always seems to surprise us but never seems to change in Scripture. For some, the level of pride, the level of rebellion against the light will see judgment, suffer, be given opportunity to repent, and will refuse. They will worship the demonic. They will call truth a lie and lie the truth. They will call good evil and evil good. And if you're wondering what it means to call evil good, just watch the Grammys from this past weekend. Actually, don't. Just read about it. I'd rather you didn't watch it. They will worship what they create. They will worship death. They'll worship themselves. They will murder and call it mercy. They will reject life and promote death. And nothing will be left for them but judgment. And guys, this is not something we delight in. This is something as a, as a community of believers, we do our best as a, as a community of ambassadors of the gospel, as a community of, of prophets and priests and a holy nation, as Peter calls the church in 1 Peter 2.9. We are praying and working so that others would be reconciled to God. Now, some people might have a problem with God's method. And by that, I mean, why, why let evil, why let it have this kind of reign? Now, I don't have all the answers. I, I don't need to have all the answers, thank you, for God. And, and he definitely does not need to answer to us. But I will say there, there seems to be a method God has in letting evil have its time so that a, a greater purpose, his, his purpose may be served. And this shouldn't be surprising. When, when the disciples witnessed the death of Christ, the disciples thought that evil was winning. When the devil witnessed the suffering and death of Christ, he thought he was winning. The Gospels tell us that the, the devil entered and influenced Judas in, the, in the, the movements building up to Jesus' suffering and resurrection. In John 13, 27, it says, and then, and then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, speaking of Judas. Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. But while the devil was having his moment, something larger and something eternal was taking place. As Paul says in Colossians 2, Jesus was, was the one doing the damage to evil in his humility and suffering. Speaking of the cross, it says in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2, verse 14, since therefore the children, uh, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See the way the gospel reverses things? So while it appears that Christ was being crucified and his life taken, that, that the devil was about to have his greatest moment, Jesus was in his body nailing every weapon the devil can hold over your head to, to the cross. Guilt, shame, fear, death. On the cross, Jesus put to death, death itself, the final enemy of creation. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, says that Jesus will destroy the last enemy of creation, death. And, and here's the point. 
It's often been a part of God's sovereignty to allow the very things we glorify and desire and place our trust in to have their full effect so that we see their inability to bring life and therefore turn to him. And we've seen this and we will continue to see this in, in the book of Revelation when, when alliances to ideologies and the gods we've created has its way in our culture, in our families, in the political arena, in our corporations and businesses, in our media, in our desire for power. Eventually it turns and it consumes its own. And for some, this will mean ongoing torment. And for some, it will mean turning to the God of life. God's hope is that it will bring wisdom and clarity leading to repentance. But sadly, Revelation 9, 20 and 21 tells us the sad truth that the, there are still those who will be hard-hearted. Verse 20 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. There will be some who refuse to release their grip, will refuse to stop their worship of their own creations. And scripture is clear that behind the worship of false gods, there is demonic activity. Paul warns about getting involved in the worship of other gods because they are not harmless. There are real powers behind them. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says, No, I, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So we're reminded that our ultimate battles are not political or between ideologies. There is something deeper going on. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the reason we cannot, as Christians, divvy up what we do in our bodies as those things for Christ and then those things for me or for the world, for the church and then for business, because what we do with our bodies actually matters. With our bodies, we either worship God by conforming to his kingship and authority or we welcome evil. That's why Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The words of Revelation 9, 20, and 21 are heartbreaking. Warning, suffering that comes about from rejection of God, rejection of the Lamb, has become so evident by this time. One third of loss of life from the power of evil, and still there is a lack of of repentance. There is nothing more heartbreaking than watching the trajectory of a life that says no to Jesus and no to the life that he offers. These creatures that bring wrath and suffering are, are creepy and strange. They, they make no sense. And because they are a mix of animal kingdom and humanity and darkness, they're a strange mix, a terrifying composite, composite of things that do not belong together. But spiritually, there's also something composite and scary of those who claim to follow Jesus and submit their hearts and minds to so much of what the world says ought to rule them and what, what they ought to pursue. To verbally give agreement to the living God and then pursue a life bowing to gods that cannot see or hear or walk. John mentions idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. It's from expensive to whatever's lying on the ground, from gold down to dejected wood a descent into the worship of the worthless, trading in the God of life, the God who speaks for dead things. And when we do that, our lives reflect 
what we, are, what we worship. Revelation 9 is a reminder that, that the many gods, the many ideologies that promise freedom and independence and power are in fact draining us of hope and blinding us and causing us to move more firmly and plant ourselves in a decaying worship of those things that promise life and bring death. Whether they be political, personal rights, sexual rights, the promise of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Christ is that after suffering comes life. The gospel is an ongoing invitation to give up everything in order to gain life. It was the model of the lamb who now reigns, and it is the model for all those who call him Savior. Guys, evil is on a leash and will not win, and its threats and its promises are nothing in light of the resurrected, reigning, cosmic Christ. May you abide in him this week. Church, I love you and I miss you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you peace. God bless.